This is an ABC podcast. When Jonathan Seidler would walk with his dad, Ray, through the streets of King's Cross, everybody wanted to stop and have a chat. It seemed like the whole suburb was mates with Ray. Everyone from heroin addicts and sex workers and people sleeping rough, but also film actors and big shot lawyers. Dr Ray Seidler had first set up his medical practice in King's Cross in the late 1970s and he stayed committed to the neighbourhood for the next 35 years, becoming a big advocate for safe injecting rooms in the cross and running groundbreaking methadone programs. When it came to Ray's own life, it would have seemed to outsiders that he'd been dealt a lucky hand. He was a father of four high-achieving kids with his beautiful wife, Debbie, a nephew of the famous architect, Harry Seidler, and he lived in a fancy home near Sydney Harbour. But Ray also had a secret life, one where he struggled with his own mental health, which caused him to regularly run away from his home and family. The shame and secrecy around Ray's mental ill health was so strong that it was never talked about in the tight-knit Jewish world he was a part of. In 2013, Ray ended his own life at the age of 61, leaving behind a devastated family and a heartbroken community in King's Cross. Ray's son Jonathan has now written a memoir about his own life and his life with his dad. The book is called It's a Shame About Ray. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how's it going? The book title, It's a Shame About Ray, references a song by the American indie band Lemonheads. Music was a big part of your life growing up, wasn't it? Absolutely. And it's been really fun trying to explain to people that uh, this is not actually a book about the Lemonheads. I obviously look for musical references wherever possible. I started my professional life as a music journalist and I think my father instilled my love of music from a really early age. So it's always been a huge part of my life. What kind of music was your dad into? My dad was into a lot of soul music. Um, He was into jazz in a big way and he really liked disco, like strange disco. He was a big fan of Earth, Wind & Fire in particular, uh, which... You know, it's just such the antidote of the music that I was listening to when I was growing up. And I think that's probably where we butted heads the first time. But he just loved music that could transport you and make you feel really happy and really good. Being into music is something that a lot of teenagers uh, would have in common with you, Jonathan, but not many teenagers grow up in the kind of surroundings that you did. What was unusual about the world that you grew up in? Uh, Yes, so I grew up in a quite gilded, glittering area. Uh, I call it the far eastern suburbs, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, that, that really pointy end of, uh, of Sydney's eastern suburbs. So that's uh, areas like Borclues, Bondi, Rose Bay, Watson's Bay as well, all surrounded by shorelines and beaches, lots and lots of wealth, uh, and, and the, I guess the trappings that, that come with that, private schools, SUVs, uh, the rest of it. So that was kind of my reality for most of my most of my uh, young life, really. And what relationship does that kind of prosperity have with trauma, with a history of of the absolute opposite of that abundance? It's a strange one, and I think people do forget about where that comes from. Uh, Australia, obviously, 
has had a huge intake of, of foreign migration, but in particular with my story, lots of post-war Jews who came after the 40s and 50s, uh, and, and Bondi in particular is built off the back of that migration of Jews from, from Eastern Europe. It was really different <laughs> when my grandparents came over to what it is now. And I think the idea that it's always been that way and it's always been kind of rich and fancy and, you know, it is not necessarily true. And it was built off the back of, you know, hard work by people who really came with, with not only nothing, but no family either. A lot of them had lost their entire families in the war. Uh, so it is, it's, it's quite a unique situation in that sense, in that it, the relationship between the prosperity that you now see, as opposed to where it was kind of built is just so vastly different. It, it sometimes blows my mind. Do you think that contrast brings a particular kind of pressure to the people who live there? What I call like the need to succeed, I think is really, really strong in the eastern suburbs. And that is pushed to the limit. Everybody doesn't want to do well, they want to excel. You go to a school and you you want your school to be the best school. You want your kids to do the best they can. You want them to be the top of everything they do. And I think that that anxiety that, that fuels that comes from knowing that anything could be taken away from you at any time. How much did you know about your dad's dad when you were growing up? What stories did you hear about him? Not that many, to be honest. He died before I was born. Uh, the stories that I did hear were always quite fantastical. And we'd get, obviously, because Harry was quite famous, uh, my great uncle, who was his brother, uh, we'd have stories related to Harry, which is kind of how Marcel, my grandfather, would be brought up. And most of the stories were about him starting businesses. He started, you know, he ran a shirting business, but then he would try and like bring, I think he brought Velcro to Australia for the first time. He, he started, should be on a stamp. Yeah, <laughs> he started, you know, a sex therapy business. He was always starting new things. He was always kind of doing quote unquote crazy stuff. And that was kind of my understanding of him. And then there were the stories about the things that he'd done, which were, I think, beyond the pale. And the one famous story that I definitely knew of growing up was about him leaving my dad in the snow. He'd taken him on a holiday when my dad was about 13 or something like that and had kind of gone off with some woman that he was seeing. And my dad called my grandmother and was like, can you come pick me up, essentially, because he'd been left by himself he'd, and his father had just completely gone off the rails. What had happened to your granddad, Marcel, and his younger brother, Harry, during World War II? So the Seidlers uh, grew up in Austria and the parents, I think, they moved to Australia earlier, but they sent their children, the brothers, over to England where they had other family and, uh, you know, family friends and they were staying there. But because they spoke German, everybody who spoke German in England at that time was treated quite suspiciously. And the story goes that Harry in particular rode his bike down to the police station because they'd come past to check up on him for something. And he was quite innocent. He was a teenager, drove his bike down, locked his bike outside and was summarily put on a ship and sent to Canada as an enemy alien along with his brother. Sent to Canada? Yeah, to an internment camp. Despite the fact that they were Jewish and fleeing persecution because they spoke German, they were treated as enemies. And they were both there for a number of years, which would have been pretty horrible, I imagine. What was life like in that internment camp? I don't know that much about it. I know, obviously, again, from Harry, because a lot of his, uh, his life is well documented, that Harry was already doing sketches of buildings as a teenager in prison, essentially, which is just beyond me how that happened. But oh, I do know that when they got out, um, Marcel went to Australia to join the family almost immediately. And Harry, I think, was picked up by Harvard 
pretty much straight out of the gate and was already on the way with his career. So they kind of diverged at that point. And when Harry, your great uncle, came to Australia, I mean, he started making his name as an architect almost immediately with with the house he designed for his mother. Yeah, he didn't want to come. Uh, He was obviously moving and shaking with some really bougie individuals in the architecture world, but also, I guess, in the worlds of commerce and, and everything else. And he was working with Nimai, he was working with all these different people, and his mother calls him and says, you know, you have to come to Australia, we want the family to be together. And he's like, absolutely no way. And then eventually she was like, I will give you a commission, build me a house. What kind of relationship did the siblings have, do you know? I mean, it can't be easy to have a very famous younger sibling? I think they loved each other very much. I think it was complicated. I understand that it got more fraught as the years went on, mainly due to Marcel's ill mental health, uh, but also Harry's just extreme star power that kind of exploded both in Australia but around the world. It would have been quite difficult for, for him to see those kind of things happening. And while I think that they were still very close with each other, it was a different kind of relationship. When you talk about um, the stories you'd hear about your grandfather, Marcel's behaviour, you know, that awful story about leaving your dad in the snow or about coming and going, starting new businesses, how was that kind of understood in the family? Like, what was that a a sign of or a a marker of in, in the way that he was spoken about and remembered? It was essentially that he was erratic. You know, he was erratic, he was kind of a bit strange... But then Harry was quite erratic as well. You know, he was driven. He was really, really uh, intellectually stimulating and would light up a room and everyone would want to be around him. And that was the same with Marcel. They were just magnetising people. And I think it was really hard to separate what was potentially happening and also the layer of having come out of an atrocious war in which many of their family members had died. Um, They were quite lucky. They still had a whole family unit. But the extended family were gone. My grandparents on both sides lost almost all of their family. Uh, you kind of don't know where the trauma ends and the rest of it begins. So I think it was hard to pull those apart. So your mum, Debbie, and your dad, Ray, were, I guess, the pioneers of this next generation of the family, being born in Australia, far away from the horrors of Europe. And, and the world must have seen and seemed to be their oyster to a degree. So you're the first of their four kids. When you were growing up, Jonathan, how did your dad compare to the other fathers around you? What do you remember thinking about what Ray was like compared to the other kids' dads? Especially as a teenager, every son has that weird relationship with their dad where they're like, oh, God, you're so embarrassing. But even though I had that, and I didn't have it often, I will say, what I did notice was that a lot of my friends gravitated towards my dad, that he just had that energy around him. He was really fun to be around. He was really engaging, but also he listened and he remembered. He had a really good knack for bringing somebody into a conversation and making them feel like they were the only person in the room. I remember being quite proud that everybody thought my dad was cool. He was the one who played instruments. You know, he was the one who like hung out with celebrities, even like the stuff with all the heroin addicts and whatever. Like that was such a badass story to be able to tell your friends. Like, <laughs> he's not an accountant. <laughs> no, he's not an accountant. You know, somebody came into the office the other day and threatened him because he didn't have methadone or whatever. You know, like we just didn't, we grew up in a really different way, even though we did, like I said, grow up in the eastern suburbs. We had that duality of also having King's Cross and, you know, we ran methadone clinics um, for many, many years, uh, which was a lifesaver for a lot of his patients. And I worked there and all of my siblings worked there as well. So you had that real insight into kind of how both sides of society work, which I think was really important. You worked there. What did you do? What do you remember about working at a methadone clinic? I I worked uh, as a 
I think that the word is dispenser, essentially. Uh, there's a lot of rules around methadone, obviously, um, in terms of the way that it comes out and you have to be able to see the person taking it at the time. And my dad thought it was important that I have a summer job. And at one point in time, I think I was... 19 or something that was my summer job and I thought what I thought was really interesting is everybody has in their mind I imagine an image of what a heroin addict looks like or somebody who has has an addiction and you would have people who were dressed you know like they were lawyers going to work in the same way that I guess if you smoke lots of cigarettes you have to put nicorette patches on Uh, so they would literally come on their way to work line up take it and go and and I remember that being such an eye-open experience and also it really humanized them and I think that that's what made my dad very different is that he could humanize with anyone because in addition to having addicts and having celebrities, he also had travelers. We dealt, dealt with a lot of people who picked up SCIs because they were in backpacker hostels. So we just had this like melange of experience that, that didn't happen to most people my age, especially in my area. How would your dad talk to you about his patients or, or how did he talk about them? Like what kind of attitude did he have towards that huge, you know, range of humanity who would come seeking medical help from him? Everyone was the same. And I thought that that was really, at the time, I thought that was very strange because it's like, you've got Heath Ledger over here and then you've got old mate who smells like he's been rolling around in a ashtray for 20 years over here. And they would both be sitting in the same waiting room getting the same treatment. I think that's what attracted people to him. But I also thought that was what was attractive about him was the idea that everybody is entitled to the same treatment no matter who you are, but also that you can't judge somebody based on the experiences and the circumstances of how they got there. Uh, And I think we're very quick to judge societally uh, people who end up in situations of addiction or abuse, and it's often not their fault. It's almost always not their fault. When you'd visit your dad at his um, clinic in in Kings Cross and and say walk down the street with him, what was it like walking through the streets of Kings Cross with your dad? Everyone knew him, like everyone. It's kind of like if he was a mafia boss, a policeman (laughs) and a doctor all at the same time. Uh, and, And I just remember it would take us, I mean, the car would be parked seven minutes down the road and it would take us half an hour to get to the car you know, and we'd have to get hot coffee here and we'd have to shake this guy's hand. We'd have to check in on the nursing home on the way. And it was just, that always happened. And once you made it to the car and closed the door, like, was your dad energised by that or was he kind of depleted by all of those interactions, all those people wanting a piece of him in a different way? I think he did get tired. And I think we'd see it at the dinner table where sometimes he'd get a bit irritable, but mainly when he'd fall asleep in front of the TV, like almost immediately. He gave a lot every day. He started really early and he often ate lunch while visiting people or, you know, like the kind of breaks that most of us schedule into our day, he was also working. And then he would do radio or he would, you know, write blogs or whatever else he'd be doing after after all of that. Um, and then working obviously with the methadone clinics and the hospitals and, and that whole network in Darlinghurst. And, and, you know, he'd also go out and do talks to other doctors about looking after themselves. So he really didn't give himself much of a break. He basically worked six or seven days a week. So that's work, Dad. Tell me more about what he was like at home. Like what contribution did he make to the family's eating over the years? My mum cooked dinner every night, but my dad was really involved in what I would call spontaneous cooking. And he was really big on do-it-yourself. Way before we were all making sourdough in in our kind of kitchens, my dad bought every single white good implement known to man. He had a bread maker. He would make jam. He would, you know, grow herbs. He would have fruit. It was just like never ending. And he would make us eat all of it. And like the time that he had on the weekends, that's what he would spend it on, just making crazy stuff 
in the kitchen and he would just do it all by feel. He'd make it all himself. He'd go to the markets and go talk to the, you know, the guys at Flemington and get boxes of mangoes. I just thought that it was great that he was always trying to make something and always trying to figure out what else he could do by himself with the materials that were available to him. Of all the things that he had going on in his life, where do you think he was the happiest? Weird things like picking up rubbish on the beach. He really, really liked going to cafes in foreign cities and just talking to people that he'd never met and just sitting there. He was a very lean back traveller, immerse yourself in the moment. And my mum was a very, we need to see the Eiffel Tower and we have five hours kind of thing. And they were really opposite in that regard. And I think I learned a lot from him in that respect, especially as a journalist, the, the ability to sit and listen and to just take in the surroundings of what you can learn from people that you meet uh, in different walks of life, which I think he did anyway. It just came naturally to him, but he extended that wherever he was. So I think he was really comfortable in those places. And I think he just loved like kind of like, we had this hammock in our backyard and he loved lying in the hammock with us and just like singing songs to us and be, being goofy. So this was the social, extrovert, capable Ray. What else was going on with your dad that that no one really talked about when you were younger? So my dad had what I think we label now as treatment-resistant depression. Essentially what that means is no matter what you throw at a person, whether it's talk therapy or medication or shock therapy or whatever it is, you don't really react. And, and the longer it you go through it, the worse it gets essentially and, and the less able you are to respond to treatment. So I think my dad probably had this from a really young age, young age. It was likely passed down from his father, given that we know that my grandfather was a manic depressive. But we don't really know what happened. What we do know is that it was already happening when he was young and my mum only found out when they got married, after they got married. So that was just you know a piece of information that was kind of dumped on her, which I think was quite unfair and actually was also dumped up by grandmother when she married my grandfather. No one really knew what was going on. My dad had this this depression and it manifested itself in running away, as you mentioned before, which was not a running away as in, I want to leave my family, I don't want to be here, but just a compounding of stress, which would result in robotically picking up and leaving and driving as fast as you could, as far away as you could, until you inevitably got picked up by the police, which he always did. He just needed a break from the life that he was leading. Four kids, multiple jobs, extremely demanding, high-paced, and also like quite fraught at some times. Um, difficult family life, I think, on his, from his own family as well. And, you know, I think some people deal with that in different ways. Some people go out and get really, really drunk. Some people beat up their partners. They do all kinds of things to release that stress. My dad's way of dealing with that was basically going away. As a young, younger kid, Jono, was he, was that depression, did that lead to him just sort of taking to his bed? Did it have that kind of effect of him, of him just withdrawing from the world, but still staying within the house? Not to my knowledge, but then I was young. So I, I mean, my cogent memories of what was happening was as a teenager, I think when my mum kind of brought us in on what was going on. But as a kid, what I remember is that he would run away and he would be brought back and there would be a quiet conversation that would happen. And I think sometimes he would he would have ECT. So when he came back, he would often have a treatment of ECT, which was like getting a replacement battery for your car, uh, which means it's good for another five years. And those those intervals were pretty solid. 
I think, when I was growing up, which is why I didn't hear about it that much, because it would be every three to five years that one of these events would happen, usually around the birth of a child or taking on too much work or some crisis or something like that. That's when that would happen. So realistically, it would have happened three or four times before I knew what was going on, maybe a, a few more. Um, But as I got older, I started to see what was happening. And I think the problem was is that the depression would then manifest itself post that running away. So rather than just him running away, having treatment, coming back, having maybe a day or two off work and just going back to it like nothing ever happened, he would be in bed, you know, for a week or sometimes two weeks. And that was a lot harder. What would your mum do when when she'd realised that your dad had just taken off? Uh, she'd probably go through the usual channels, which was firstly calling his sister, then calling his mother, and then when she realised that he wasn't at either of those places or at the surgery, she'd call the cops. I think at the beginning it was probably easier to do. She had managed to have a conversation with the local police where they kind of knew what was going on and that he wasn't a threat or anything like that, but he needed to be found and that he wouldn't resist being found when that happened, which never, you know, that never actually came to pass. And there was never any conflict when he was found. And they just track him. Uh, I think he learned pretty quickly that he shouldn't take credit cards because credit cards could be tracked. So he'd start taking cash. He'd turn his phone off. You know, he'd do all of those things to prolong that period. But it was sort of like a a zombie state. It it wasn't like an intentional, I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes and not coming home kind of of vibe. Uh, He never seemed upset to see us when he came back. It it was really weird. It's like somebody is is removed from their body and then re-enters it. As a teenager, what idea did you come up with as a way to to track your dad when this would happen? I think I was actually in my 20s because I'm just thinking about when the iPhone came out, probably in my early 20s um, or maybe as a a late teenager. uh, I got an older iPhone which had Find My iPhone on it and I realised that we could use that to essentially trace where my father was going just to kind of relieve the the angst that my mum was going through and by virtue all of us because we were kind of aware of what was happening at this point. And I put it behind the spare tire of his car on silent uh, and turned off all the other apps. And I think my aunt Linda, who's my mum's sister, me and my mum had access to that. You know, I set up the phone. Nobody else knew it was there. Um, but we started finding him real quick. So rather than him getting to the central coast, we would get him, you know, before he even got to the CBD. And I think he probably knew that and something what do you mean was going you'd get on. Him? How, how would you do that? You know where he is. What what would you do as a family then? So, we, you know, we would kind of wake up and he'd go pretty early. So he'd go at like 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. and he'd slip out of bed and, and go. Um, and often he'd go early to work and stuff like that. So it was hard to know if he was trying to leave or if he was just going to the gym or, you know, you can't really stop someone every time they leave the house. And uh, But when we knew what was going on, I would have I would literally have the phone and I'd call my brothers and we would drive and essentially hunt him, which was really horrible to think about now in retrospect. But we would show up with our cars and he would have no explanation for what he was doing. And you just, you know, when a kid does something wrong (laughs) and they have that crestfallen look on their face, like, oh, well, you got me. Hide and seek is over. It was kind of like that. We would literally just escort him home. He wouldn't argue or or defend. He'd try and make up some excuse, but again, he was in a different state of mind and the excuse would not be a, a, a really believable one. Oh, I was just going to the... It was like, no, you're meant to be at the... What are you talking about? Why is there a bag in your car? You know, it was... 
it was pretty easy to talk him out of it, but also pr- quite distressing for us, uh, especially the younger ones. And it's it's a reversal, isn't it, of that parent-child responsibility where you think as a teenager it might be the parent who's coming out to find where you are rather than the, the teenagers and early adults looking for the parent. Yeah, and especially as a teenager for me, uh, I mean, I was a pretty good teenager, but especially as I got into my 20s, I was a nightmare. So the idea that I was somehow a responsible, <laughs> a responsible adult, you know, looking after my dad, you expect that to happen. I don't know if they get really ill, you know, if somebody gets cancer or or something like that, you all rally around, that's that kind of thing. But in this sense where it's something that's invisible, where you can't really see or explain it and you're not allowed to talk about it, that was really, really difficult. Not allowed to talk about it. Tell me about that. So for quite a while, and I believe it's been reversed now, there were rules around doctors who were considered unfit to practice and having a severe mental health impairment that my father clearly did. Um basically disqualified him from practicing. So he would have lost his job and he would have lost his job for a number of years and would have had to prove that he was fit to work again. So my mother had stopped working at that point um, to look after all of us. So we would have had no household income at all. Uh, So that was really, really stressful. And there must have been its own pressure on your dad. So there was this sort of professional silence around the, the depression. What about within that that sort of gilded world that you describe of the far east of the eastern suburbs, how feasible did it feel to, do you think, for your family to be open with other members of their community about this struggle that was was happening in their own home? It was really unfeasible. And I got a message the other day from a friend of my mother's who's read my book and mentioned that she remembered my younger brother, Zach, being dropped off at her house when my dad went on one of these lambs, but had no context as to what was going on. So everyone was in the dark. And the reason that everybody was in the dark is that there's no room for ill mental health in a society like that. You've come from the worst circumstance possible. You've come from an atrocity like the Holocaust. And the idea that you can manufacture something in your mind that is somehow like at the same level just does not gel at all. But also when you're driven towards professional and personal and financial success, the idea that you can be your own undoing, it's just not, it, it, it does, there's no framework for it. There is now, but there definitely wasn't back then. So I don't think we could have had that conversation even if we wanted to. I think there would have been very few people who, not that they wouldn't have been willing to hear it, but would have really understood what we were talking about. I don't think the language was there yet. is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Jono, you didn't quite get the marks to get into law, which you were kind of okay with, but your grandparents weren't standing for it and they decided to pay for you to to get a spot in a law degree. What stance were your mum and dad taking about all of that? I think my dad wanted me to be happy and I think he knew that I would be successful if I applied myself to the things that I loved. I don't think he was as driven about me being a lawyer as perhaps my mum was, who was also a lawyer and had trained as a lawyer. But there was there was a weight of expectation. I was the first grandson 
from these two high achieving parents, from grandparents who had come from the war. This was the moment. And, and it kind of felt like I'd almost failed in a way. And that was quite, that was quite hard. <laughs> what do you remember about your first months of uni of this law degree that you didn't stay with? What was happening? I was out of my depth in a really, really big way. And I think the problem, I mean, of the many problems with private schools, the big problem is, is that they make you feel like you're the centre of the universe. And when you get to uni, you're one of thousands. You either show up for class or you don't. There's no one to kind of like say recess is over. And I remember feeling quite lost. And also I remember feeling extremely, extremely out of my depth. And I was failing, like pretty much immediately failing my law subjects. And I had never failed anything in my life. It just, it just undid me really. And I had my, I had my first depressive episode and, and essentially didn't leave bed for about two or three weeks. How did your parents react? They were very worried. Uh, I don't know what they were thinking at the time, but I know that I was in with the GP almost immediately and I was on a mild antidepressant within a day. And I think it was the understanding, like, this will be a blip. This happens. University is hard, you know, but we'll get through this. And I think what was perhaps underestimated was how severe it was and the fact that it would start repeating itself relatively quickly. Uh, and, and I don't think anybody was prepared for that. Your mood didn't just stay in that depressed state, though, Jonathan. What what was the other side? So first you come out of the depression. So you feel nothing, you see nothing, you don't exist, you hate yourself, you don't want to get out of bed, you're getting dragged out of bed by your family members, you say horrible things about yourself, and then one day you wake up and it's gone. And especially for the first few times, you don't know why it's gone, you don't know when it's gone, but it's just gone. And you're like, okay... I'm normal, quote unquote. Again, this is great. But that starts to tick over into mania. And what that looks like is an amplification of being normal to a point that you don't recognize yourself either. And I think it's important to note that rather than just swinging from one to the other, you do go through that period of normalcy in the middle. And it's often quite hard to detect, especially if you don't have bipolar one, which is where mania is serious. And that's what my grandfather had, where mania is like, I'm starting a new business. I'm leaving my son in the snow and going to meet my mistress, that kind of jazz. You, you don't really do that. It's just an extension of your personality. But you stop sleeping. You start coming up with ideas really, really fast. The way I described it the other day was most people have 24 hours in a day, but if you're manic, you have 72 hours in a day. You don't need sleep. You just work at a, at a 1.5 times, 2.5 times. Uh, you think I'm speaking fast now, but imagine how fast I would speak then. And people can't keep up. You're quite irritated with other people. And you do kind of outlandish things. And I think everybody's experience is different, but I like picked up smoking. <laughs> like, because I just didn't have enough to do with my hands. I started a fashion label because I thought it was a good idea and then nobody would back it. And I started screaming at people about it. Stuff like that, where it would just kind of come out of nowhere. What diagnosis were you given at 21? So I was given a diagnosis of bipolar 2 disorder, which I actually received from the Black Dog Institute which is still around and does amazing work. And that was the result of two and a bit years of continuously cycling through psychologists, medication, diagnoses and getting nowhere. What did that diagnosis feel like? Where did it land for you hearing that bipolar 2? Like a massive uh, red cross above my door, to be honest. Especially back then, it was a real no-go zone. You hear the word bipolar often described in relation to the weather, but you also hear it regard, uh, regarding 
people's personalities who you often see in mental institutions. It's not like depression, obviously, but it's also not treated the same as depression. You, it usually lives in the neighbourhood of schizophrenia and it's really, really scary. Um, I think I'd been in an extended period of mania at the time. I think I was wearing all purple or something on the day, it's just something ridiculous, things that I thought were really great as an idea but weren't in retrospect. And I remember walking out, it was in Randwick in Sydney, and it was really hot um, but also quite windy and I was standing at this boom gate where you were allowed to go in and out and I was just bawling and I was crying and I was crying and, and, and I just said to my dad, like, my life is over. And he's like, no, it's not. You know, lots of people have that. I was like, no, no it's, it's over. Like, I have read enough books. I, I know what this is. I didn't know what it was. But I thought I did at 21 because everybody does. <laughs> and, and I just remember being inconsolable. When you got home together, what did your dad start Googling? That was a really good move on behalf of my dad, which I have to give him massive props for because I don't think I would have done that in the heat of the moment. Uh, and we get home and he takes me upstairs to the... Um, the PC room, which everybody used to have in their house until we all got laptops. Only in the eastern suburbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was just his study where he had a PC. Um, but, you know, it was where he could sit down at a computer. Uh, and he sat down and started Googling famous people with bipolar disorder. And there's so many people on that list. And that list grows every day. Uh, and this, this was people who had actually actively talked about it. So movie stars, musicians, painters, directors, just some incredible people. Um, I remember seeing people like Stephen Fry and Lou Reed and Jimi Hendrix and just going, oh, okay, that's interesting. Why did that help? Why, why was that such a smart move from your dad? I think firstly it normalised it, but also it made it feel like it was something enviable in a way, which is just the opposite of how I was feeling at the time, which was I am one of one and I am now an outcast in society and I will never re-enter society and this is now going to follow me around like a bad smell for the rest of my life. Instead, it was like, no, you're now part of this like really cool club of people who you mostly look up to and admire and you didn't know also had this thing and it almost felt like a secret key, which is just such a dramatic reversal and and it really changed how I thought about it. What's the recommended treatment for bipolar? It varies uh, depending on who you are, but one of the most used treatments is lithium. And what does that feel like to take? It's a slow-release drug, so it, you take it once a day and it kind of releases over the day. What it does do is it kind of builds this, almost like this studio actually, this, this cone around you. Uh, so when you do get too low or too high, it kind of stops you from breaching that, that level. And that's essentially what it's meant to do. It's a stabiliser. So you exist in a, in a happy medium where you sometimes feel happier and you sometimes feel more sad because you're a human, but you don't go way over that way or just sink into a depression. Did you still feel like yourself with that medication or was there a part of you that kind of pushed against that, that softening? I think the first time I really pushed against it, because I took it and it had pretty quick results and I had not had results from very many drugs. So again, two years of literally every drug on the market, um, my weight going all over the place, my mood going all over the place, and suddenly I take this and I'm just having this extended period of calm that I haven't had for a really long time. But then I remember going to a rave and all my friends took ecstasy and I took ecstasy and they were like on the floor, right? They are having the greatest time and nothing happened to me. 
And and that was the first time when I realized how it was working. And I was like, maybe it's a one-off, you know, maybe I should. And, and I was like, I'll try it again. And it just, nothing happened. And it's never happened for me since. And I remember being like, I'm in my twenties. If I can't take ecstasy, <laughs> what am I going to do? Uh, so that was the first time I tried to convince my psychiatrist that I wasn't going to take lithium. Uh, and <laughs> and he were did, they convinced by that argument? I want to be able to take not, ecstasy at raves. <laughs> he was not. But I noticed it in other ways as well, where, you know, I work in creative practice, uh, whether it's in journalism or advertising or whatever. And you often have to kind of go beyond traditional thought to get to an idea, uh, lateral thinking or whatever. And I found that I was kind of like getting close to the idea, but I wasn't getting there. And I got the understanding that lithium was doing that. It doesn't, but it felt like it was. In reality, it was my body acclimatizing, my mind acclimatizing to what it means to be stable, which I hadn't been arguably for five years, uh, but I was just looking for excuses. So your dad right off the bat, brought in these examples of famous people, famous artists who had the same condition as you and who had struggled but were succeeding in, in various ways. Did he ever talk about examples closer to home with you in, in the wake of your diagnosis, you know, his own struggles with mental health or his father's? No, he didn't, and I think that was protective. I think he really didn't want me to feel even though I was already putting those pieces together, like I was part of some disastrous lineage that actually stretched back two, three, four, however many generations. I think he wanted me to feel like whatever was happening to me was different to what was happening to him, but also was different to his father, with whom he'd had a relatively fraught relationship at the end because he was quite off the wall um, and who had died quite early. He wanted those to feel distinct. So at no point, I think that I remember, did we, did he say like, oh, your grandfather had this too. Whereas like, I would absolutely say that to my kid. It was just not a conversation that we had. Five years after your diagnosis, Jonathan, your dad took his own life. Was that something your family had been bracing for in a way? Not entirely. I think certain members of my family were. I think the person who did really think it was a possibility was me because I was starting to understand perhaps for the first time the other side of my father that the rest of my family, though they did understand because they loved him and they lived with him and he was everything to them, they didn't have access to that range of emotion and that feeling of despair that I identified with. Um, so when I saw how bad it was and how chronic it was becoming, it did seem to me like one of the conclusions to this uh, particular predicament. What sort of state do you remember being in in the hours, the days, those, those first weeks after your dad's death? I remember essentially being a bit of a cement character, I think is the way I would describe it. I didn't let anything in, I didn't let anything out. Uh, which retrospectively is an extremely male trope, but I just didn't have the capacity to do that and I was in charge for the first time. Uh, I was now the man of the house and I had brothers who were overseas. I had grandparents who were in Europe. Everyone had to come home, you know. I had to get everybody home. I had to organise all this stuff um, and I had to look after my mum and my sister who were still at home. It was just, there was so much to do. And by investing myself in what I had to do, I could ignore the gravity of the situation. What happens in an Orthodox Jewish household after someone dies? What's what's the ritual? A lot of quality time. <laughs> 
there is a ritual called Shiva, um, and Shiva is the number seven in Hebrew, and it's seven days of mourning in which you actually don't leave the house. So the family stays at home and mourners, so other people who knew the person who's died, come and visit and they bring food and, you know, we had so much food, oh, my God. But everybody comes to you and, you know, you wear black socks and you don't shave and it's a full-on thing. And I think for families that don't like each other, it might happen to like each other a lot, it's, it's an extremely uh, pressurised situation because we were all adults at this point, apart from my sister who was still a teenager. All of us were adults and we hadn't lived in the same house for quite some time. So putting everyone back in there as adults and having to deal with that and the situation itself was just really, really difficult. But I think we managed it relatively well. Well, what did your brother Zach suggest you do? So Zach decided that we should watch some stupid movies, which I think was a good decision, actually. And we really wanted something mind-numbing that would take our attention off uh, what was happening. I think the rabbi was about to visit and we were going to have some, like, family council or whatever, and none of us really wanted to do it. And we'd had some really awkward interactions with extended family members and it was all getting really horrible. And it was really sunny outside as well, I remember that. And I was like, oh, God, what is going on? I'm stuck in the house. Anyway, so we watched The Fast and the Furious, uh, <laughs> which is a phenomenally incredible film and I will not hear a bad word said about it. <laughs> I think at the other end of the way to handle grief spectrum, perhaps, is is the prayer or the ceremony of Yizkor. What mm. happens at Yizkor? So at Yizkor, you essentially have a prayer on Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the Jewish year. Uh, it's a fast day. I just went through it. I don't recommend it. And you stay in synagogue when everybody else leaves. So essentially, uh, if you have a direct family member who has passed away, you stay. If you don't, you leave. So everybody who's young, everybody who, you know, is lucky enough to still have both their parents or siblings or kids alive, they leave the synagogue. So the synagogue that I go to is quite large. On the high holidays, I think it numbers like 2,000 people. It's a really, really big one. So that means that like 1,500 people are walking past you when year score starts because most of the people there are young. And I remember being there for the first time uh, when my dad had passed away and it, it's essentially a prayer that, it, you know, where you welcome back in the dead in a way, not in a Dias de Murtos kind of way, but where they're with you and you can, you can kind of like be around them for that two minutes or whatever it is. And it's the holiest moment of the holiest day of the year. And it is something that I think the Jewish religion does exceptionally well, that idea of space, but confining you to a to an area and a point and a time with which to experience that space. I'm sure other religions do it as well, but I didn't appreciate it, I think, until I had to go through it myself. And, you know, I guess the, the Fast and Furious is one of those versions of distracting yourself or taking yourself, giving your mind something to feed on mm. in the midst of strong emotion. What was different about that stopping and staying in the synagogue uh, as a way of being with the fact of your dad's death? It forces you to reckon with it in a different way. You have nothing, and that's a very naked emotional state to be in, particularly as a young man. Uh, we are not well trained to deal with that. And and I think when you are in that situation, finding a way to navigate it and to honour it in the right way is something that you have to almost advance plan because you'll find yourself in it and it will be over. And so I did a lot of work, especially for that first time, 
about what I thought it meant because I'd obviously seen Yuskov for years, but I would leave and my grandfather would stay, you know, or my uncle would stay because his father had died. And I really, I, that first time I, re- I really felt it. Um, I felt like he was there. He used to stand next to me in synagogue, you know. So I've got my brother who's three times his height standing in the place, but he's there. And, and that was, it was the most visceral that, uh, of those experiences. All that um, shame that had been in your family, the fear about uh, your dad's illness being more widely known, after this terrible thing had happened, like the worst thing that can happen, how did the community treat you? The community were incredible, but that was because somebody had died who they loved, which is not to diminish it, but they didn't know how he had died. And for a long time, they didn't know. Most of my friends didn't know. Some of them are finding out now as they read the book. Uh, that was the distinction that I would make. Uh, was that an unspoken agreement or was that something your mum or, or someone else in the family said, we're not going to talk about the fact that Dad took his own life? I don't know if we ever spoke about it at the time he died. I think it was pretty implicitly understood. We've been hiding it for so long, it just felt like an extension of what we were doing. So that concept of having to sit down and have a chat about it didn't really happen. We, I mean, he'd been running away. He'd been in hospital, you know, getting ACT, being essentially, a, you know, a zombie for months. So we were already, already kind of primed for that. But no, th- those conversations happened later. How has that changed over time? I think you need the element of distance. You can't attack something like this at the time. We're getting much better at attacking things closer to the time, but you do need that distance from the event. And particularly for us in the situation we were in financially, but also in terms of the community and and ourselves, I think, in a big way, especially what was happening with me, we needed to just hunker down and deal with it ourselves. We kept the surgery going. Most of his patients didn't know. You know, they thought he had a heart attack, which, I mean, he's 61. He, He didn't. But everybody kind of went along with it. And slowly, 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 we started to have mini conversations about it. And I think Zach, my brother in particular, who now works at Movember and has made this his career, men's mental health in particular, was agitating quite heavily for us to start having those conversations publicly. He was finding it quite stifling. He was, you know, meeting new people in his line of work where obviously he would be in a really strong position to have an opinion on these things. It had happened to him, you know, he could use this experience to help other people. And and that's what we all kind of felt. My mum was very resistant. She thought we were going to be judged. Uh, She thought that it would affect the practice. It would affect us. It would affect me. Um, And there was, you know, I specifically remember like big fights at the table about it between Zach, between my mum. My mum was also like seriously, seriously depressed after my dad passed away. Uh, Didn't leave the house for like, I think two years, like genuinely. So we're dealing with trying to bring my mum back to life, so to speak, but also pushing her to acknowledge what has happened so we can all move on. And that was not a quick process. And I think I have to point that out because some people might think like, oh, my dad passed away and a year later we're all hunky-dory. It was not. It was like four or five years. Um, But we got there because I think Zach got asked to do an op-ed for The Guardian around uh, November or maybe it was around Suicide Awareness Day. I can't remember what it was. And he, the headline was kind of implying that men need to talk more about their mental health with a direct reference to suicide. And, and I think the line was, I wish my dad had. Uh, so it was kind of us outing ourselves uh, for the first time. And Zach basically said, I'm doing this. Take it or leave it. It was pretty vicious, but he won. Um, and I remember that being a real pivotal moment for us. It's not like I went out and told everybody. 
In fact, I don't think I did anything with it at, at the beginning, but people read it in the same way that people have read my book and, and other things, and it started to seep through. And what people had thought had happened had changed, and I started getting messages about it. And I remember my friends in particular starting to reach out and asking me delicately about it. And it, it felt really good to be able to have that conversation. Another big change in your life was you meeting and falling in love with Karen, who's now your wife. Before you proposed, you sent her dad, Aria, a letter where you told him about your experience of living with bipolar 2 disorder and also about your dad's death by suicide. How did your new soon-to-be-in-laws respond to that letter? They were fantastic, actually. Uh, my mother-in-law, Sharon, she caught me crying and I think the first thing she said was, there's so much of this in Aria's family. There's so much. There's so many men in Aria's family who have problems like this and none of them talk about it. Yeah, I've been trying to get him to talk about it for years. And she's like, thank you so much. That's all she said. Um, so it's, it's always uh, telling that the wife reads the email before the husband. <laughs> but yeah, he was, I mean, he is an amazing person. And I think he really appreciated me telling him. Uh, and I think our relationship has only been stronger as a result. I basically treat him as my own father at this point. So they gave their approval, their encouragement for, for your wedding. What did you find yourself doing on the morning of your wedding? Woke up very early and uh, I went to my father's grave, which is obviously what you do on the morning of your wedding. What did you listen to in the car on the way there? I listened to Earth, Wind and Fire. <laughs> Another highly appropriate thing to listen to when you're going to a cemetery on the morning of your wedding. Why was, was that what you wanted to do? Why did that feel important? Because I love Earth, Wind and Fire. <laughs> but also uh, I felt like I needed to have a conversation with my dad basically. Uh, we needed to have a chat about what was happening. Uh, I needed to express how frustrated I was that he wasn't going to be there. I needed to explain to him why I had chosen the partner that I had and also express my anxieties around what was coming in the future and, and the fact that I would not have a role model uh, to do that alive. You and your wife have a, a child of your own now. What did you decide to call your baby? Our baby girl is called Ray. We actually didn't have a conversation about it until I think my wife, I think, I think until we found out the gender. So whatever that is, 13 weeks. Uh, and we'd had conversations about names before, but neither of us had really been serious about what we wanted. We'd also gone through a miscarriage, which made it incredibly difficult to have those conversations. Uh, but when it did come time uh, and we found out it was a girl, I think we both just turned to each other and I said, listen, I have an idea. And Karen was like, I want to call her Ray. And I said, all right, that's, uh, it's interesting. That's exactly what I was going to say. But also that's an amazing thing for her to have done because she never met my dad. So that's a big sacrifice in a way. I mean, it's a name, but it also comes with a lot of meaning. And the fact that we both came up with that independently is pretty cool. You had had fears earlier on in your life of passing on this kind of line of, of mental health struggle. How have those fears changed or have they changed now that you've actually got this little human in your life? I have different fears, like what you're going to choke on that's on my floor. <laughs> but I think the larger fear, which I think you build up in your head when you get that narrative delivered to you by somebody else, which is this is the thing that you have and this is who you are. And also this thing is in your blood and it probably came from somewhere and it could go somewhere, is that it's not just that. 
it's also your environment. It's also society. There's a whole lot of other things that come into play. So hypothetically, if Ray, my daughter, uh, does inherit whatever it is that I have uh, and has depression, has bipolar disorder, has something else, who knows? What she will have that is different are two parents who were honest with each other from the get-go. That didn't happen with my mum and my dad. That didn't happen with my grandmother and my grandfather. So you're breaking that cycle at the time. We also, the fact that we are having this chat has indicated that we have moved on as a society to be able to have real and honest talks about what this means. I don't think we were doing that 10 years ago. I don't think, I definitely don't think we were doing that 30 years ago. So there's the environment and there's the social construct and, and I think there's the love as well, which obviously was also there with my parents. But you, when you combine those things, I'm, I'm just not worried in the way that I was. There are elements that you are consciously wanting to do differently as a dad, but what elements of the way your dad was dad to you do you hope will show up in the kind of father you'll be to Ray? I think being present as much as humanly possible, but also engaging her in, I guess, the multitude of elements that made my dad so amazing, a lot of which have passed down to me. So music, singing, reading, you know, the one way we can calm my child down is by reading her a book. You know, other kids, you have to sit in front of the TV. She will literally point at the book. She's six months, seven months old. And if we don't read her the book, she'll scream. But if we do, she's calm. That's amazing. Uh, and I'd like to think that I passed that down, but it probably has nothing to do with me. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing some of your, your family story with us on Conversations. Thank you for having me. Jonathan Seidler's memoir is It's a Shame About Ray. Remember, if you need to talk to someone, then Lifeline is always there, 13 11 14. And the Black Dog Institute has some great resources too. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. last time you bought something to wear? This week? Yesterday? The average Australian buys 56 items of clothing and chucks out 15 kilos of clothes a year. So how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of the ABC podcast Threads, where I undress the fast fashion industry and how it's designed to make us buy until we die. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.